Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This music is making me do sort of David Byrne-like dancing in here. Um, and it's not a pretty sight. Thank God this is radio. So we're going to be talking about books today. We're talking to two different authors. I was looking for a good through line, and th- there is one, which is that in each case, the author's book is heavily influenced by a work that came before. In fact, a work that came before in each case becomes part of the structure of the book, part of the of the arc of the book. So uh, a little later in the show today, we'll be talking to Colin McCann. Uh, his new book is called 13 Ways of Looking. I probably don't this being in Connecticut and me sitting in Hartford and all this stuff, I shouldn't have to tell you which literary work 13 Ways of Looking uh, owes some of its structure to. But uh, anyway, we'll be talking to him about that and also about the fact that many of you know last year in New Haven he had this horrible incident in which he tried to intervene uh, in a uh, what was essentially a, a domestic or marital dispute, but it was taking place kind of on the sidewalks of New Haven, and he was badly injured by the assailant. Uh, I mean, badly injured. So we'll be talking about that as well and how it kind of seeps into the work. Uh, We're going to begin with uh, a guest we've had before and we've enjoyed a great deal. A few years ago, Sloan Crosley was with us for a show about proms and we liked her so much. And then we just we sat around for years saying, when will Sloan Crosley come back? How do we is there like a bat signal that we can show against the sky to make Sloan Crosley come back? Uh, And it turned out we just had to wait for her to write a book. And it's called The Clasp. And her version of uh, what uh, Wallace Stevens is to Colin McCann is de Maupassant's uh, The Necklace, uh, which becomes uh, something of the one of the engines kind of thrusting this book uh, into the sky. Sloan Crosley, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Signal would have been. I guess yeah, I know what would have been. It would a, be a, a dried mango, a silhouette of a necklace, probably yeah. for the book. <laughs> uh, so, boy, you're always thinking promotion, and I like that. You're it's. Not... I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking dried mango. You were thinking necklace. <laughs> uh, who, who's to say either one really defines you and who you are? So well, one makes a prettier silhouette. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a dried mango could look nice. Sure. Um, the moon's a dried mango on some nights. Aww. So uh, we have to, uh, it sounds like a Jimmy Webb song or something. But anyway, <laughs> we have to get right down to, to brass tacks here and, and talk about this book, which, uh, so I've got my blurb for it. You can f- feel free to use it. I think it's sort of the contemporary, madcap, fun version of All the Light You Cannot See. You know? Because, oh. <laughs> Hap- that sounds great. Because it's kind of a jewel thing, you know. They're both kind of jewel things, and they they traverse some of the same geography too, if you think about it. Um, and so it's kind of you know uh, run with that anyway. So, uh, but okay. that, none of that's uh, helping anybody who's listening right now. Sloan Crosley, tell us a, a little bit. Give people your thumbnail uh, of this book. 
Or just give my us elevator thumbnail. pitch for yeah, the book. Exactly. <laughs> or just give seconds. your thumbnail. That's a, a all of a sudden I start screaming on the radio. Yeah. Um, no, uh, basically uh, it's a love triangle uh, and a comedy of manners about three friends who reunite after being estranged um, for about ten years post college, and they reunite at a wedding, and then the book. Um, goes from Miami, New York, L.A., Paris, and then um, the latter half takes place uh, in Normandy as one of these three friends, the most sort of Eeyore and Joe Blake of all of them. You know, he doesn't get the girl. His apartment gets broken into. All this, you know, at one point in the early draft, I had him fall off a bike, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, he becomes obsessed with the idea that the necklace uh, behind Guy de Maupassant's famous short story, The Necklace, is real. Uh, And he decides to go after it, hence the taking place in France. And I think what I wanted to do with it is, you know, there's a a sort of subgenre of the coming-of-age story that I would call the the coming of age too late story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often it's in like in movies it's in like the Big Chill uh, or all of Noah Baumbach's movies. I guess mm-hmm. uh, in books it would be in the Group uh, or The Emperor's Children by Claire Massoud. And I just wanted to do a sort of fun comedic physical manifestation of that. Well, and, and that's, that's the clasp. <laughs> so that that raises a semi uncomfortable question, which is um, so you just named a whole bunch of different works of literature and and cinematic works and stuff like that, and we could also throw in. All the comedies that are on HBO almost are um, about sort of people who've hit their 20s or early 30s and it's kind of, you know, not really sure. working out the way they, they, they wanted to. But so th- then the question is, how generation specific is this book? I, I will say, first mm. of all, I was vastly entertained by this book and I'm certainly not its target demographic. Um, you know, I'm, thank you. So uh, but I, I was, you know, very involved in their problems and very um, amused by their predicaments, and I certainly recognized myself in various characters. So that's the that's the good news. It's not that generation specific because I'm really, really, really old. Um, but but on the other hand, on the radio, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, on the other hand, there is a way in which right that there's. I mean, every generation is lost for a while, but there's maybe kind of a there's right. a, well. Let's use the phrase quarter life crisis. This is kind of a quarter life crisis book, right? Well, they're older than that. They're yeah. 29, 30, but that still makes them seven years uh, younger than I am if we're doing math. Also, people live, um, a, lot, people th- live a lot longer. People live a lot longer. So so a couple of things I think are going on why, why hopefully I can, I can guess uh, why you're connecting to it, which is good. Uh, one is that uh, a sort of larger point of the story, which I, I didn't mention in my elevator pitch, uh, is that I've always been attracted to – Works of art that are about other works of art. I mean, like mm-hmm. you said, I mean, I'm looking forward to column on the on the second half of the show. Um, so, you know, you think of Zadie Smith on Beauty uh, or Ann Patchett, Bel Canto, that's opera, or, um, you know, Donna Tartt, The Goldfinch. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is sort of a tribute to this short story. And that's a, a genre that is not generational. That's that doesn't matter. And the other thing is, is I, I'm very lucky in that a lot of the, the positive press has said that I've sort of, you know, this is about millennials. And I I'll take it because it's a compliment, you know, but mm-hmm. I didn't um, – it's a little bit embarrassing to finally admit that actually I, I wasn't intending to write about millennials. <laughs> uh, this is just this period of time um, and how I think. And, and I think that uh, it, similarly, you know, the, the book is told from two-thirds of a male perspective. But it's not like I did extensive research into the male psyche. I just lived in the world and then – and wrote about it. So it's not – and it's sort of comforting when people say it sounds accurate because then maybe it means, well, millennials, they're just like us or, or men, they're just like us, you know? Millennials, they're almost human. 
They're yeah. almost human. I mean, I think the marker of millennials or what we've been told is the marker is that they're um, a bit disappointed. You know, it's like I never promised you a rose garden. Like they, they just – they're marked by this idea that they were told uh, that they could do anything uh, and which is on the surface positive but uh, maybe has some negative ramifications when you try to hire one as your assistant. Um, and then – but the truth is is that uh, that's really the only part of them that's that's millennial and, and disappointment um, – is not generational as much as we're pinning it all on them. I mean, I know plenty of disappointed 18-year-olds. I know plenty of really disappointed 45-year-olds. It happens. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and I think beyond that, I mean, one, th- one of the things that I was thinking about uh, here, I was, I, um, I was down at my former university a couple of weeks ago to do something else, and somebody came up to me who works for the alumni magazine, and I had never seen this person before in my life, but he said, well, you know, hello, blah, 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 about this and that and radio stuff. And then he said, and by the way, I really enjoyed your class note the other day. And I was standing there with one of my classmates, and my class note was a little, and who started chuckling, because my class note was, like most class notes, a little bit self-congratulatory, but I also like ne- mentioned all this negative stuff that had happened in my life. And, and he said. Yeah, and but that's what people don't do, right? And so one of the things about this book is it, it is very much the story. Uh, that's what we do with our. We're actually all writing class notes all the time in their lives for the most part. It's it's oh, well, that's what Facebook was invented for, and it's what life was invented for. It was happening well yeah. before Facebook. So your three characters are kind of. You know, although one of them, the Eorish one, doesn't make much of a pretense to not being miserable, but everybody's sort of looking at everybody else, and I guess maybe this is very Facebooky. You know, everybody's looking at everybody else and going, "Well, obviously he or she is having a better life than I am. Things are working out a lot better," and and it's it's sort of about that private hell that that each person is is in. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Oh, I definitely do. I mean, I think that if you spend all your energy on the on the mask of appearances as these three characters tend to do, um you uh you know, there's a hollowness that happens inside and I feel like the story is really about them falling almost like dominoes into sincerity, right? So you mm-hmm. have Victor who falls asleep on um the mother of the groom's bed at this wedding I mentioned, uh, a little bit drunk, and she wakes him up. And he's sort of the first one to want out, to think, you know, my life is not going the way I want. I'm just going to toss everything and and go and look to the future. Um, Or if you think of them as the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. And then there's Kezia, who works for this crazy jewelry designer, and she's just trying to act as if and, and make sure everything is status quo. And then you have Nathaniel, who would be perfectly happy with that image. You know, he's happy to be pigeonholed as the cool guy from college, even though he hasn't been working very well in L.A. and he hasn't been doing very well and he's sort of in financial ruin. Um, but they're all – what I like about them is that they can't keep up that facade for long because they've known each other for so long. That's right. I mean, it is, it's, it's about how you can't lie quite as successfully – to your college friends. Right. But I, I think it's also, I mean, I was sort of thinking about uh, you and Colin McCann. Um, each of your books has to do kind of with where 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 hell is located, you know, <laughs> I mean, in life, where, <laughs> where is hell located? Now, obviously, uh, your characters ultimately, uh, hell is a, a somewhat comic place for them to be, but, but still, they are kind of in hell. And I think for them, hell is missed connections, or it's sort of the anti-E.M. Forster book, right? Only connect. Except right. that only connect. Speaking yeah. of Zadie Smith, right. Right. I mean, I think that hell is, um, and then maybe this does become generational um, to millennials a little bit, um, 
hell for them is wanting to be obsessed with something and having nothing to be obsessed with. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of, um, you know, the way I first started talking about the book to my editor when we were working on early drafts. I said, it's like possession, but funny, you know, and he's like, I don't I don't actually understand what that means or what that would possibly what would that possibly entail. But I mean, the idea of of wanting so desperately to have something concrete um, and and to not feel so adrift. I mean, that's that's what everyone tells you about everything. I mean, not to turn this into a self-help hour, but there's really nothing lonelier than being in a relationship when you feel alone. That is much lonelier than being single. And same thing when you haven't found your people, your group of friends. There are whole movies that are made about this, plays, operas. Um, and what really the lesson of the clasp is is that the question is all of these people are asking them, do I hold on or, or clasp, as it were, to the relationships um, that are in front of me or do I sort of jettison them and move on and they're at that point, which I think is a point that people come to if you've ever had a friendship where you think, okay, I'm just going to make one more phone call and then can we can we call this? Are we done? You know, if I don't go on this weekend with everybody, am I going to go on – am I going to be invited on the next one? And um, it turns out, of course, over the course of the book that they're not strangers, that they are family. Um, but that's – yeah, that misconnection uh, is certainly hellish for all of them. They just don't realize it. So let's uh, let's extend this metaphor or this concept to you. So prior to this, you were known for writing comic essays, where in fact the level of connection with your material is different. I say this as someone who's written a lot of comic essays. So um, so I mean, your books where I was told there'd be cake and uh, how did you get this number um, and. and so, and so when you write a comic essay, I mean, you're really just trying to engage with somebody a certain way, right? You, you, mm-hmm. it does, it's not your whole life story. It's not their whole life story. You're just trying to get them to see something that's kind of funny for a little while. Um, and, and so the kind of conversation that we just had about life um, is something, for the most part, that comic essayists, I would argue anyway, hold at bay. Because, you know, yes. in a thousand words, you're just better off not thinking about any of those really big questions. So how, how <laughs> avert, much... Of, avert your eyes. <laughs> totally. So how much of a transition was this for you? I mean, you're you're talking like a novelist now. You sound like a novelist. Uh, wow. And, you know, you're talking big picture, deep questions. Which, but, that, right. but I guess what I'm saying is that meant you kind of had to do something similar to what your characters had to do, which is connect to characters and to to life questions in a much bigger and sincere uh, and less guarded way. I don't know. Would you right. accept that argument? I would accept it. I mean, I think it still uh, is a comedic novel. I oh, mean, yeah. It's almost like cleaning. It's like the house is set on fire. What do you take? You know, like the passport, the cat, and some photos or something like that. I mean, if you imagine the essay house being set on fire temporarily, I mean, I'll go back. I thought, what do I take with me? You know, and mm-hmm. I, I think the tone, the humor – the observations, although to your point, I mean, for essays, you're really only selling someone on one concept, and that is the concept of your voice and yourself and the authority you have uh, to use it and to deploy it. Um, and you have to do a lot of selling with a novel. You know, there's a cast of characters. There's three main characters here, but there's probably a total of about 15. Um, and I had to sell myself on them first. And part of that is in a way, withholding jokes, do you know, and making sure that they're different. So just because I have a character in a situation where I know that if I was sitting at that restaurant, let's say, I would observe X, Y, Z, maybe that maybe that character wouldn't. And so it's learning how to hold it back um, until they become kind of real to you. Uh, and so I think the other difference really is that essays um, – 
Get ready because this is going to be very profound. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I hope that, is I have, everyone I, sitting? I have my, my seat <laughs> in its upright position. Good. My trade table okay. is locked in place. Trade table is locked and loaded. Okay. Uh, essays end. They do it all the time. <laughs> they just keep doing it. So you can bring a thought to its completion. In some cases, depending the length or the idea or the nature or complexity of the essay, I've, I've had the final two lines in my brain before I started, and I just had to get there. It was the journey to get there. And then you can move on to a new stream of thought. Um, whereas a novel, I mean, this took me about four and a half years to write, and you have to consistently water it and keep building this world and be responsible for everything and just a different set of things than you're responsible for in, in essays. Were you pretty confident you'd be able to do this? I mean, the world of... Uh, of humorous essay writers or comedic essay writers. Uh, I mean, we can each of us probably name some of our favorite uh, people who just couldn't do this. I mean, the person who really inspired me to start doing it is Roy Blunt Jr. I think he's written one novel, but it oh, certainly yeah. just doesn't really loom. It doesn't loom. His novel doesn't really loom large among Roy's works. Roy turns out to work um, so beautifully in, in other kinds of formats. And I know for mm-hmm. you, Fran Lebowitz might be uh, another example of somebody who just... That's a just, really good one. Yeah. <laughs> or Dorothy Parker, actually, while we're at it. Yeah. Yeah. So did that have did did that cause anxiety in you? Like, what if I'm more like them? Oh, of course. I mean, of course it did. But at the same time, I um, I had a hunch only because I started writing fiction. I mean, I I, I just didn't publish it. Mm-hmm. So I've written stories my whole life. I wrote a pretty terrible novel when I was about 22, which will never see the light of day. Um, and I mean that. That's not like a post, you know, <laughs> no one should go through the drawer and find it. It's genuinely not worth it. Um, but, you know, I always wanted to do this. And I, you know, I worked at Random House in the vintage books publicity department for about 10 years and largely worked with um, authors of fiction and, and not nonfiction and was really immersed in that world. And I've always loved short stories. I would say I have an equal amount of anthologies than I do novels or almost on my bookshelves at home. And so it's always sort of been my world. And I fell backwards into nonfiction. And this is not to say that it wasn't work once I was I fell there. Mm. <laughs> and I don't love it. And I'm not going back. And it's very much who I am. But it's it's not what I set out to do. And so knowing that I started in this direction, even if no one saw it, helped give me a little bit of a boost, I think, when I was alone in my room writing it. So, yeah. And, and uh, well, I mean, you, there's that whole thing. That I think Fran Lebowitz brought it up, the whole idea of do you hear your characters talking to you? You know, and I think mm. if you haven't written fiction, you haven't written a novel, uh, and you hear other people say it, you, you either think that's really crazy or really pretentious or... Pretentious. Yeah, <laughs> or that could never happen to me or something like that, right? I assume you have a whole yeah. different relationship with that whole question now. Well, it's... It, what happened was is it just happened a little a little more slowly. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they say the first <laughs> first child, long labor, I right. suppose, would be a, a sort of graphic analogy. Um, and that is that uh, it, I started doing, you know, writing the novel and I had these different sort of disparate character sketches. And I was very concerned with not only making sure I wrote a man realistically, but making sure I wrote two very different men um, realistically. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know... I always – at first it started in the negative. So at first it started with, OK, well, suddenly I'm 100 pages in and I know that a certain character, if you gave me a line, I know who wouldn't say that. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. Um, and then I really – I knew they were made up. I felt close to them. But I, I was very conscious. I am a sane person. I, I knew they weren't living in my house. I mean they certainly weren't paying rent. I'll tell you that much. And then – only when I handed in the novel, um, the last draft, I got really sad because yeah. I thought these people 
are never going to be able to speak for themselves again. And um, until the Noah Baumbach, I realized movie. I thought of them as people. Yeah. Until the Noah Baumbach movie, exactly. But even then, that's you know a different form. Until until I you know write about them through poetry or my my album of ukulele music. But in this form, this is this is what they have to say. And um, I realize I, I miss them, and so it's actually kind of not so much a, a chore but a delight talking about them like this and promoting the book because it's the only chance I get to talk about them. Uh, speaking of promoting the book, uh, Sloane Crosley, uh, whose novel The Clasp we are talking about, uh, will be at R.J. Julia on Tuesday, October 27th, otherwise known as tomorrow uh, at <laughs> 7 p.m. You know, I just realized something, too, which is that um, when I was down there at my university talking to the alumni notes person, I was do- doing I was following you. I was doing something that you had just done, which is uh, weren't you the uh, token goy on uh, unorthodox? Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I think I yes. think I was the next one wait, after wait, you. On, wait, token going on uh, the unorthodox, unorthodox uh, podcast. I think you're called I'm not, G- I'm, Gentile of the Week, is what it's called. I thought I oh, saw your name on I, the list. You did, except yeah. for one very important thing. All right, I am a hundred percent Jewish. Oh, so you weren't the Gentile of the Week. You were the other thing. No. I was the Gentile of the week. No, I am. I am the the control and the experiment. Because yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. gonna, I was gonna ask you what questions that you see. I I had to show up with questions. You know, the quest, the, the Gentile has to show oh, up with about the Jews. About Jews, yeah. Yeah. No, I I no, I thought you were gonna say no. I'm I was given this uh, crazy name because my my grandfather's name was Kantrowitz, uh, and he was told he would never make it in business mm-hmm. um, as a Jewish person. Which I don't know who told him that, yeah. but. Um, he was sitting uh, in the office of a man who had a Crosley radio on his desk, <laughs> and that is literally – he thought, OK, that'll do, and that's how I got my last name. And then my first name comes from a terrible Charlton Heston movie my mom was watching while she was pregnant. So uh, I am thoroughly uh, Jewish and just happened to be walking around with this crazy mm-hmm. name. Well, I'm proud of myself for not knowing that. It's sort of like – I don't know what <laughs> – well, I don't know what the version of I don't see color is, you know, that we would apply to that. <laughs> But some version of that, anyway. <laughs> some version of that, exactly. So, but one of the things, speaking of promoting books and speaking of being at, at R.J. Julia tomorrow night, so, you know, you did come from this background, and I assume you've watched a lot of books not get promoted right, not get talked about right, books that you really thought were good back when you worked in publishing that just, oh, yeah. that just didn't get the kind of air they needed uh, to survive inside the bell jar. So, so, and you've done a lot of stuff, right, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, you want to mention one or two? i my very best. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I think the thing is, you know, um, I don't think this is going to come as a, a shock to anyone who's listening, but the, uh, you know, publishing has gotten increasingly crowded and there is less space and you know less room for all these different voices and um it's funny someone asked me the other day about um you know are, are there room for all the essayists and all the all the women and all that stuff and uh theoretically yes i think everybody has a right to their voice and a right to write it down but logistically kind of not i mean there's less ad space in magazines and so then there's less uh you know the art section is the first thing to get cut and all of a sudden there's two book reviews in a magazine where there used to be room for six um and so you have to think of other other sort of creative ways to try to promote your book. Um, and the other thing about this particular book, it it was, you know, as much of a torture as it is to write an almost 400-page book, mm-hmm. uh, it's also fun. I mean, and hopefully you can feel it. And one of the fun – I thought, well, if we can't have fun promoting it, there's something wrong with all of us. So um, I uh, did a book trailer um, with um, Amanda Seafried and her dog. Um, and the concept of the book trailer is that uh, – 
Finn, the dog, has read the book, and they're in a book club together, and Amanda has not, which was difficult to write. (laughs) (laughs) And then I had a friend um, who runs a jewelry company called Lulu Frost who made a necklace based on the necklace that I found in a sketch in the New York Public Library that I decided could conceivably, just the year it was done, could conceivably have been the necklace that Guy de Maupassant was thinking of when he wrote that famous short story. Mm. Probably not, but I just wanted some inspiration. Um, And so I plucked it down from off my desk and I brought it to Lisa and I said, what do you say to making a necklace um, based on this? Um, And so... You know, that stuff is is really fun. I wouldn't have made a book trailer if I didn't have a a good idea for it. You know, it can sort of fall on deaf ears if you're just going through the motions of promotion. You know, if you're just thinking, well, I should make a postcard for this because I have the paper. You know, I don't think anyone really cares. But the idea is to do something that's integrated with the book that sort of genuinely brings it to life and hope anyone pays attention. Yeah. I thought I also read something that involved yarn bombing or something, which a concept I don't even really understand. (laughs) So I went to... um, I did a piece on a woman who uh, does it. She's an artist, and she basically – have you ever seen a picture of something like a bicycle or a fire hydrant or a pole coated in yarn? Yes. Um, that looks like it's got a koozie of some sort on it. Cozy? Mm-hmm. Koozie? Actually, I think beer is the koozie and, and, and a sweater is the cozy. Right. They're both, but, um, they're both available at the Sloan Crosley store, They're however, both the available. <laughs> they are absolutely not. Please don't. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But they, uh, they, uh, she and I became quite good friends, uh, this woman, uh, Magda Sayeg, and she lives in Austin. And so uh, for my Austin reading, she, she knit my book into a little – she knit a little sweater around my book. And so I've been reading from it. Um, and I look, I look like – I look like a girl in seventh grade whose mother has sort of gone overboard covering her textbooks, mm. you know. <laughs> um, but it's been fun to read from it. I mean, that's the other thing that's fun is – and they're all – I mean, I think it's maybe by coincidence. I don't know. Maybe it's subconscious. But all the sort of artists that I've been soliciting to help me out are women. Uh, Wendy McNaughton, who's an illustrator in San Francisco, did a poster for my reading uh, that's coming up there on the West Coast. Um, just because it's – it's fun, and in a way, it chimes with the book because the whole book, as you said at sort of the beginning of the show, is a interpretation of someone else's art mm-hmm. in a way. And so, why not sort of extend that? Uh, Sloan Crosley, it's uh, so great to talk to you once again uh, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, R.J. Julia. I don't know if you'll get to see the book cozy or not. Uh, will you be actually bringing that with you? Uh. Well, now I feel a pressure to bring well, yeah, that one. Yeah, yes, I'll bring that one with people me. People are going to be storming yes. out if it's not They'll there. They'll be clamoring. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and definitely think merch here. You know, you're just you're perched on the edge of merch, right? <laughs> I'm I'm this close to yeah. a T-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> yes. absolutely. No, so much more. You're thinking way too narrowly. I think, think big, big, horizontal, expansive merch. You're right. You're right. All Dirigible. right. The book is The Class by Sloan Crosley. Thanks for visiting with us again. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. We'll come back. We, we hope we'll come back with Colin McCann. I, I gather he's a little elusive at the moment. Song goes out to you. I'm 25 with no direction in my life. And it's Friday night. And I'm doing all right. Can't complain. But I can and I do.
So you were promised Colin McCann. At the moment, we don't have him. In fact, if you're with Colin McCann right now, could you please remind him he's supposed to be on the show right now? Uh, I'm sure that we'll find him as we go along here. And if we don't, we'll just open the phones. You know, well, you can talk about the book that you're reading right now. Um, I, I would be fascinated to actually, I mean, not right this second. You don't have to do that. But uh, I would be fascinated to know that, partly because, as you may know, last week we did this uh, book club thing where uh, I got three literary savants together and we read um, the new Jonathan Franzen novel, Purity. And people seem to like that. I mean, the people I asked people to respond uh, at my email, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org, uh, and they seem to enjoy it. And so uh, we're going to do another one. But I'm not really sure what book we should do. So um, you could uh, email me and tell me, or if we don't... <laughs> <laughs> if we don't find Colin McCann, you can call me up and tell me directly what book we should do. Maybe it's a Colin McCann book. I'm not 100, 100% sure. But anyway, so if it comes to that, the number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Don't bother to tweet us. We may need your phone call even more. Um, although, let me just tell you a little bit about um, this is sort of my chance to talk because I don't have to ask anybody any questions right now, uh, which could be both a good thing and a bad thing. So, I mean, it is true that so this weekend— so let me just back up here. So Colin McCann, just to kind of set the stage for you a little bit, too. In 2014, he was down in New Haven, and he um, did intervene in what appeared to be a, uh, an incident between uh, a man and his wife. And he was attacked and knocked unconscious. This all happened right outside the study hotel where we often do our broadcasts when we're down in New Haven. In fact, I think I did a broadcast from the study hotel a week or two after that um, when we were down there for the Yale Writers Conference. So and he was anyway, what happened was he, he did try to intervene on behalf of this woman. And then he was he walked away from the scene. He was attacked and knocked unconscious. Uh, he didn't see it coming. Uh, he suffered, suffered multiple injuries. His cheekbone was fractured. He had contusions over both eyes. Both uh, Several teeth were broken. Um, this is all uh, because he tried to help this woman who had been knocked to the ground. Anyway, his attacker um, uh, ran away. He was left there unconscious. He woke up being hoisted into an MRI machine at the Yale New Haven Hospital. Uh, and uh, he took – it took many, many months to try to recover from this. He, there were all kinds of horrible complications. Um, he, as he wrote in his uh, victim's statement uh, to the court, um, he, I've spent countless hours in hospital rooms and doctor's offices. I contracted shingles across my optic nerve. I developed high blood pressure directly attributable to traumatic stress and suffered a heart arrhythmia. I experienced severe headaches. I've had to spend an inordinate time dealing with insurance companies and other medical institutions. Uh, he was forced to cancel um, national and international speaking engagements, and it just affected his work. For a long time, he just wasn't even really able to write. Um, it affected his family. It, it uh, affected his friends. He said in his uh, victim's statement, though, um, I have forgiven my attacker, but I will never, ever excuse him. My forgiveness will not come at the cost of silence. He assaulted his wife on a public street. Moments later, he assaulted me. Now he is attempting to assault the judicial system by claiming that he should remain unpunished because he is, by his own account, a first-time offender open to rehabilitation. I do not object to the notion of clemency, but I would like to point out that there is no such thing as a first-time victim. To be a victim is uh, permanent. To be a victim is absolute. 
Um, my attacker ran away. Now he wants the rest of us to look away. Um, then, and then he said, uh, I do not want my attacker to have jail time. I don't believe that incarcerating him will in help in any way. I have no compunction to hurt him any more than he has already hurt himself. However, I do feel that if he was to escape without a conviction in an attempt to walk away with a clean record, as if nothing at all ever happened after his double assault, that justice will not have been served. I believe that he should carry his record around as a reminder to himself of what he is capable of doing and undoing. In terms of sentencing, I would like to recommend that it be something that would aim towards an identifiable moral good to have him perform community service in a shelter or to volunteer at a late night emergency ward in addition to financially supporting an organization that doesn't allow for silence when it comes to the abuse of women. So. That's Colin McCann actually in his actual official victim's statement to the court. Um, and by the way, if you want to know how that came out, the attacker, uh, the man who attacked both the woman and then him, was sentenced um, to – he pled guilty to assault three, a reckless endangerment in the first degree and breach of peace. He received a sentence of two and a half years suspended sentence with uh, three weeks of jail time and three years of probation. The judge noted in her remarks that she hoped the defendant fully appreciated the fairness and compassion that was shown in the author's communications with the court. So um, anyway, this sort of sets up. Um, so as people, some of you know, I've actually uh, been going to church on a regular basis, really kind of for the first time in my life. I've gone to lots of churches over the course of my life and way, way early in my career. It was my job as a journalist to write about religion and about um, I was a, the religion writer for the Hartford Current. And that meant everything from covering the election of a pope uh, to covering black Pentecostals to covering Hare Krishnas to covering Mormons to I mean, you sort of I spent a lot of time sort of guesting around in churches, but never really having any permanent religious affiliation. Uh, but as some of you know, as a result of an interview that I did here on the show with Nancy Butler, uh, who's the pastor of River, Riverfront Family Church in Glastonbury and who has ALS, um, which is a horrible and tragic disease that has kind of only one outcome. Um, I, I went to the church a couple of times to get ready for that interview, and then I just kind of stayed, um, even though, I mean, I'm still kind of troubled and conflicted in my own beliefs. But one of the things I do believe is that it's it's great once a week to think about something else, you know? It's great once a week to kind of struggle with these kinds of questions. I mean, the other reason I go to church is because when I come out, I feel better than I went in, so that's a good thing too, right? Um, so th this past Sunday, I got my son to go with me. It's the first time he's done that. And he's 26 years old. Um, and as we were leaving, we it wasn't really the topic that was discussed in church. Uh, but as we were driving away from it, we started talking about that whole question of trespass and, and about – because we have talked a lot about this. And, I mean if you think about it, um, probably the words most frequently said in the English language every week in the world – think about the world. Think about the English language – Probably the words of the Lord's Prayer are said by more frequently by, by more people than certainly anything that I can think of. I mean, millions and millions of people say it, right? Like every week. So, um, so there's that whole forgive us our trespasses as we forgive, forgive those who trespass against us. So what does that mean, you know? Um, and one of the things – so we talked a little bit about that, about the difficulty, the incredible difficulty of – of ever forgiving people, you know, if they've done something bad to you. But I also, this is when I really started thinking about sample size, that, um, that you know, as you get older, your sample size just becomes a lot broader and bigger, you know? I mean, the, all the things that have ever happened to you just 
are greater in number. And also all the things that you've ever done and all the times that you've done things that you would find extraordinarily difficult to forgive if somebody did them to you. Um, so that, you know, listening to somebody who's 26, and to me that was sort of the interesting juxtaposition of Sloane Crosley, uh, who's a very wise and wonderful young writer, but she's a young writer, and, and Colin McCann, who's a bit older. Um, you know, how do you think about this stuff? How, how do things change? Because things look so big when you're 25 or when you're 30. I mean, the you know, some, I don't know, some fairly minor transgression, somebody who beats you out of $200 somehow. This is like the worst thing that is imaginable. And then life goes on and you kind of see the the world in different terms. So we were just driving along kind of talking about that. And, um, you know, I think the um, the capacity for, give, for forgiveness is one thing. You can forgive. I mean, like, what does that even exactly mean? But um, but you can forgive somebody, but maybe you can never trust them again. I mean, those are two different things, right? You could forgive somebody. You can sort of say, ah, I, I understand, A, a little bit more about who you are and why you did what you did. I believe maybe that you've changed. I also realize that my, inca- my inability to forgive you would ultimately hurt me more than forgiving you will. Uh, so I'm, I'm understanding uh, at, at maybe a really pure level that I'm much better off forgiving you, that I'll, part of the hell that I'll create uh, if I don't forgive you will – it'll hurt me. Um, so I can do – but can you ever trust that person again? To me, that's – people will forgive you for anything. They will have a hard time trusting you ever again. Anyway, that's so much in uh, what Colin McCann has written about. Uh, and – I'm trying to see who's up on the board there. I, I think what we're going to do is we'll take a quick break, we'll regroup, and we'll come back after this. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher, Zachary LaSala, and Deborah Tins. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by the Eagles. For show pages, articles, and every video of the Faith Middleton Show staff we've ever mentioned, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow, our World Series prep show. Now, back to Colin. All right, so let me tell you about uh, a few of those things. Uh, see, the thing is, like, I used to do this every day. For 16 years, I was on WTIC, and I, for the most part, didn't really have that many guests. 
you know, I'm just going to spread out the newspapers and talk about whatever I was interested in. And I'm perfectly happy to do that, although I wish I'd spent this morning reading the newspapers instead of reading the new Colin McCann book. But anyway, um, so a few things. Tomorrow we are going to do a show. I think it'll be a mostly fun but occasionally serious show on the eve of the World Series. And so we're so fortunate to have Doug Glanville, former major leaguer, uh, joining us uh, along with baseball savant Steve Metcalf and uh, Ginny Apple for many years a sports columnist for the Hartford Current. So they'll be our guests. And we're going to, well, if if you haven't been readying yourself for the World Series, if you're the kind of person who doesn't pay that much attention to baseball, but kind of at the last minute, you kind of want to know who's in the World Series and what's going on and who's the guy they call the Dark Knight and, you know, all that kind of thing. Who are those Kansas City Royals anyway? So we'll, we'll sort of get you ready for that in, in a fun way. But we'll also talk to you about some of the controversies uh, that are going on kind of from a fan's perspective. For example, the baseball these days is kind of it's drowning in these video review plays, which in some cases reveal things that would just otherwise go unknown. For example, I mean, they've discovered that a lot of times when a base runner slides into a bag, his even though he slides in, it looks like his foot's touching the bag the whole way, there, there might be this tiny little moment of a, you know, micro fraction of half of one-eighth of an inch where there's just his foot isn't entirely in contact with the bag, where no human eye ever could have detected that, but they can do that with the video reviews. And it raises almost kind of a Kantian question, like a, an epistemological question. I mean, is, is, should we know about something that we couldn't know about any other way? And if we do, should we let that affect how? we judge certain things. So anyway, we'll be talking about stuff like that um, tomorrow. A couple of things also. This is a good chance for me to clear the decks of things that people have been asking me to talk about that I haven't had time to. Uh, And so um, that's what I'll do. Um, uh, Somebody has asked me to talk a little bit about winter farmers markets. As you know, the um, the Coventry farmers market, the biggest farmers market in Connecticut, will be as we know it. Um, gone, although I, it seems to be resurrecting in some brand new form. The people who put it on for years announced they weren't going to do it anymore. There was a great uh, rending of garments and gnashing of teeth uh, and crunching of broccoli. Uh, and then it turns out that it's going to go forward. So there's going to be a winter farmer's market, I think, starting November 15th uh, in Coventry at uh, the high school there. But there's also a lot of uh, people going down on Saturdays to a winter farmer's market. I don't know when it starts, but it's Saturdays in Stonington, beautiful Stonington. uh, And there's some kind of reclaimed, well, it's not some kind, I've been there. There's a reclaimed factory space uh, where they'll be having on Saturday mornings and early afternoons, I think, a farmer's market. They will, they've been doing that for quite some time, but many of the people from Coventry are, I think, now adding their their talents and their produce uh, down there. And then, please not to forget New Haven. New Haven, the uh, beautiful Worcester Square's farmer's market, goes inside to a location that I would be unable to describe to you. I've been to it. I don't really know what it's called. But if you look it up, it's City Seed is actually the uh, entity uh, in uh, in New Haven that um, that runs that farmer's market. Uh, what else do I, And then the last thing I have to tell you is that on Thursday night of this week, um, I am uh, going to be speaking at a nearby – I wish I had all the details in front of me, but uh, Dan Okrant, uh, the guy who – I mean, Dan Okrant is responsible for so many interesting things, ranging from uh, rotisserie baseball uh, to the play Old Jews Telling Jokes to a book about pro the prohibition to what I'm uh, what am I missing. There's like a whole bunch of other stuff like that. Anyway, Dan Okrant and I will be on stage Thursday night. I don't know. Maybe if you Google both of our 
<laughs> both of our names, you'll find out how you can get tickets. But I don't think it's sold out yet, but it, it might very nearly be. So uh, we're still waiting for uh, Colin McCann, but my guess is that he's not going to show up here. Uh, and uh, so how is it possible that David Mitchell is <laughs> calling? Is, does David Mitchell, does he sort of help out in emergency situations where Colin McCann is in here? The author of The Bone Clocks uh, is on the line, I think from Ireland. Hi, are you there? Hello there. Yes, I am here. That sounds like an, uh, an an interesting afternoon you're having. Well, yes. Well, I mean, it's sort of nice sometimes if things kind of fall apart. And uh, I think so. I think so. And and you get to talk about other stuff. So um, <laughs> now I'm trying to connect some of our themes to your work on, on very short notice. But one of the things that I've been talking a lot uh, about, because it's very much in Colin McCann's uh, book and in Colin McCann's life this, these days, is how people deal with the whole question of trespasses against them, um, how uh, how they cope with the whole question of forgiveness, you know, how—, how how we take the wrongs that are committed against us and either either we're able to process them, process them and turn them into forgiveness and a sense of atonement and, and, or not. And, th- and that's something that runs through some of your work, right? Give me give me your, your reaction to that. My reaction to that, well, firstly, Colm, who I know slightly, uh, he is a great writer and this is one of his, um, one of his core themes. Uh, perhaps in my case, it's more of a peripheral theme, but... Uh, what I would say, I suppose, on the subject is, is I've noticed in my own life, and, and, and I guess this feeds into my work as well, you don't so much feed people, uh, I'm sorry, you don't so much forgive people for their benefit, but more for your own. Um, few things will just gnaw away at your soul uh, than a grudge. And so it may take time, and of course it I suppose depends upon the magnitude of the crime or the misdemeanor that was committed against you. But uh, I think uh, I think forgiveness isn't just a nice, inverted commas, Christian virtue. Uh, although I'm sure, of course, uh, all the world's main religions would and should advocate the same. But uh, it's more of a part of a healing process when a wrong is done against you. At some point. Um, however long it takes, you have to get to a place where you can forgive uh, the 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 offender, uh, because if you don't, it does you more harm all over again. Does that make any sense? That makes a tremendous amount of sense. And I think the other thing that we have to realize, and I think as 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 a novelist, it's something that probably occurs naturally to you, is that um, that when we are the trespasser, when we are the transgressor. Usually we're creating our own hell for ourselves anyway. I mean, I know in my own life, when I was the most transgressive, when I was doing the most things for which I would eventually have to seek atonement or forgiveness or something, you would think think that that would be a time of great gratification because you're granting yourself such license. You're breaking rules. You're not really worrying so much about hurting other people. And and I was completely miserable during that time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um... Uh, um, our culture is hung up about, uh, on this freedom word, and we think freedom is this this, this suspension of rules and regulations. Um, but uh, when we're in that phase you're talking about, and uh, often as males, it's sort of when we're late teenagers slash early twenties, uh, we do discover that these that these social norms that we think we're being so brave and and and, and 
bold and historically singular by breaking. They're there for a really good reason, uh, and it's uh, and, and 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 it's not just for the benefit of the transgressed against, but 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 for the um, transgressor as well. I don't know if you know that um, Crosby, uh, that uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash song. Chicago yes. by Graham Nash. Mm-hmm. Would that ring any bells? And, yes, um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, um, I recently read a really interesting review with um, an interview with Graham Nash, and uh, the interviewer asked him a really good question that it's good to uh, put to these uh, rockers of a certain vintage. Is there a certain line uh, or lyric that you wrote in one of the songs you're famous for that you now wish you hadn't? And <laughs> Graham Nash uh, picked on that line from... That song, um, Chicago, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and it goes, rules and regulations, who needs them? Throw oh, them out right. the door. Yeah. And uh, in the interview, Nash was saying, ah, I really regret that line on a daily basis because not all rules and regulations, and you mustn't follow them unthinkingly, but, but, but a lot of them are there for really good reasons. So, um, so you have me and Graham Nash agreeing with you. Right. Oh, that's, yeah, I mean, that's what gets to something I was saying before you came on, which is about sample size. You know, as we get older, we have a bigger sample size. We begin to sort of see things a little bit differently. Hey, we're kind of burying the lead here, which is that Slade House, uh, your brand-new novel, comes out tomorrow. So we've only got about a minute or so left, but uh, uh, this is... Okay. <laughs> well, we've had a great conversation. Yeah, anyway. it's fine. That's true. The Slade House. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's, yes, as you say, it's uh, my new novel. Uh, it's out tomorrow on your side of the Atlantic, in fact, worldwide. And I'm excited about it. It's my first ever fairly short book. Um, I wrote it with almost embarrassing haste, um, but it just it was just one of those I didn't have to agonize over. It just arrived pretty fully fully formed of its own volition. It's essentially a ghost story, and it's about a haunted house, although what is one of those? Um, It's about an apparently haunted house with apparent ghosts who turn out to be both less and more than they appear to be uh, at first sight. And that is a great elevator pitch, and uh, people should get it right now. That way they can read it as it tumbles towards its climax on Halloween of 2015. You can actually sort of finish the book. If you get it right now, you can finish the book in time to be uh, affected in in exactly the right way. Thank you so much, uh, David Mitchell, for appearing out of nowhere. I don't really know how that happened, but (laughs) that was great. Thanks to Betsy Coughlin and Kion Wolf for keeping their cool heads about them on this show.